Hey everybody, Tyler Smith here. I uh, just wanted to start off with some announcements that we forgot to include uh, as we were recording this episode. First off, uh, if you are going to Comic-Con this year, uh, David is arranging a meetup at the Tipsy Crow uh, on Thursday, July 21st at around 8 p.m. So if you want to say hi to him, I believe uh, Ryan Gallagher will also be there from uh, the Criterion cast. So uh, yeah, if you are going to be in the area... Uh, drop by and see David. I unfortunately will not be there, but uh, but he will be, and uh, he's a lot of fun when he's drunk. Anyway, so uh, the other one uh, has to do with uh, <sighs> Pilar talk, in which a uh, friend of the show, Pilar Alessandra, will be recording with us and answering your various uh, sex and relationship questions uh, by relating it to, to film, and, and, you know, you can learn so much through through film about relationships and sex so if you have any questions uh and by the way maybe keep them light uh we're not looking to actually solve anybody's problems uh send them to david at battleship and uh yeah we might uh, read it on the air and 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 uh and respond to it so uh again tipsy crow july 21st 8 p.m uh, in san diego you can meet david there uh, and then any questions that you might have for uh, Pilar Alessandra uh, in the Pilar Talk uh, segment of the show, um, <coughs> just email them to david at battleshippretension.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. Did you time that out specifically? I, I don't think anyone heard that. Oh. I hope not. I hope, yeah. Maybe, maybe they did. How appropriate. I realized that, that I just... forgot to open my beer before we started recording. So oh, okay. I thought I would wait and open my beer while saying my name directly into the mic and maybe it would mask it. Oh, okay. I see. So email tyleraboutleshippretension.com if you heard the beer open. Uh, please don't. Don't do that. I don't want. I'm. D- I'm going to take my email off the website, so because I'm just. I've had enough of these people. Why did I go that route with it? I actually like them quite. A- is that you all right? This is the worst beer. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what is it called? I it's don't drink called beer. Name tag. Where did you get it? I don't know. I didn't get it anywhere. Somebody brought it. Oh, it's not good. Are you going to keep drinking it? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> so, I said my name. Did you ask me how I am? Uh, no, I didn't. How are you? Uh, I'm. In a good mood. Things are going well. Oh, good. Um, but there's something on my mind. Okay. All right. What's you, that? You know. I d- yes. <laughs> um, Theater of the mind, David. Come on. Our, our friend um, and friend of the show, uh, Dave Chen on Slash Film, um, wrote a very interesting uh, response to a Gawker article. And I think um, Dave's piece, I just had it up. I think it was called How... How to handle how critics should handle TV spoilers? I, I think, think just spoilers, but uh, it's only about television. Oh, so. okay. I thought TV was in the title, but it is very much about TV, mm-hmm. and I want to talk. So I want to address that first: why we're talking about it here, and why I'm not talking about it on my other show. Okay. Because I feel like anyone who listens to my other show, the TV show, the TV review show, 
already what's that called it's called previously on got you it find it at previously on show.com or on itunes um thank you um already approaches spoilers the same way i do clearly or mm-hmm. else they wouldn't be listening to the show so right. we, we kind of preach to the choir um and i don't want to do that because i don't want to come from a position where i assume i'm right because dave's article um brings up a lot of good points and i think is a is a discussion that needs to happen mm-hmm. so here's uh, a quick backstory: the Gawker article, and I honestly I can't remember the guy's name who wrote it. Um, but he perhaps that's for the best. He posits that, uh, even though I kind of agree with him, uh, he posits that um, TV spoilers you should stay spoiler free for about a week after the episode airs, and once the next episode has aired, then you can feel free in anything you're writing about the show to spoil everything that's happened before. Okay. Um, or in our case, on a podcast or on my other show, talking about the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Dave says this isn't... Um, th- that's uh, kind of maybe... Not, not presumptuous, but kind of arrogant, I think. To, that's what... Uh, I think that's where Dave was coming from, saying. That I don't know if I would if I would use uh, arrogant. Presumptuous actually isn't bad because it's you're presuming that everyone who is reading this review or whatever or listening to this show, what have you, uh, has has definitely watched the episode from last week or whatever the but case. But yeah, may but be. I mean, D- Dave thinks there's something wrong with presuming that. Oh, okay. Um, and he says it doesn't reflect the way that people watch TV now. And this in, actually in, in, in a DVR, DVD, Blu-ray, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, Vudu streaming world. Did I get them all? <laughs> you said Vudu, and here's the thing: I don't know if you're joking or there's something called there's a Vudu. There's thing called Vudu. Okay, I I don't know. <laughs> um, but actually, my not knowing speaks to something that I was that I was saying beforehand because uh, David did bring this up. Uh, before we started recording, uh, you're talking about me, David, not Dave Chen. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Going I will, forward, I will say him. I will call him uh, Dave, and I will be Dave. And you're David. Yes. Okay. So, uh, and one thing that I like, uh, something that I really give Dave Chen credit for is that more so than almost anybody I know, um, he is somebody who understands, or rather, I mean, he understands, but more specifically, and perhaps even more importantly, he takes into account. Technology, like new technologies, uh, new media, and he incorporates it into how he approaches art, or or more specifically, art criticism. And so, you know, when it comes right down to it, if you're going to make a TV show these days, you know it's going to be on TV, going to be on DVD at some point. And so there are. I've said this in the past. I think I said it. We were on the uh, Goebel show that. a show like Lost was made. I mean, it w- not only was it made for the DVD age, but I think the filmmaker, the the not filmmakers, but the the makers of the show, the producers, showrunners, like, showrunners. Um, I think they know that. I think they take that into account. They know that people, in order to catch up or whatever, they're going to watch the previous seasons on DVD and probably one episode right after another. And so I think that influences the way they make their show. Uh, that's neither here nor there. But I what don't know I that's entirely true. But that, yeah, like you said, it's not. I think by not, not not even by and large. I but think I think yeah, maybe they assume that people's memories are stronger. You know, where they can bring up something 
that was in a previous season without having to over-explain it too much. But I think beyond right. that, I don't think that Lost was approaching the show in a vastly different way than a pre-DVD age. I would Lost say DVD and internet, though, because even if somebody, even if there weren't DVDs, there's still people talking about it online and all that sort of thing. And so, But Lost was still doing, I think, the quintessential TV thing, which was making a series of small stories... That made up a bigger story, right? Whereas, you know, this goes back to something I said last week about how Sopranos is the best TV show ever, and we got a uh, comment on the website saying, "Why not The Wire?" And I think the reason it's not The Wire is because The Wire, as remarkable an achievement as it was, it isn't even really a TV show in that sense. Mm-hmm. It's, it's yeah, it's cut into pieces, but it's it's not following the rules of TV, or trying to expand the rules of TV. It's just. Uh, using the general outline of the medium to tell essentially a miniseries or a novel or a long movie. Which, and... So, and so that's... Yeah, go ahead. Although, oddly enough, I will say that uh, it's very successful as a television show. You and I both love the show, and one could say that... And this this may... You know, you were... But this wor- being... I, I, I get into this a lot because I don't, I don't want to sound like I don't like The Wire. Why I do you hate The, the wire, wire so much? But I, I it's... It's a very good. I don't know that it's successful as a television show, but that's not a knock against it because I don't think it's set out to be successful as a television show. Except that it's a show that I watched on television and I found it very successful. And I watched it not even all on DVD or but I'm something. Saying, I mean, look at the people who wrote The Wire. Other than David Simon, he hired people like George Pelicanos and Richard Price and De- mm-hmm. Dennis Lehane. He specifically went outside of TV. Right. The, he wanted to make this a novel, and I think... He's, he succeeded at that. Except that. that he didn't write a novel. He made a television show that was admittedly... Unli- I, I agree with you that it's unlike other television shows. It's more but of a it's miniseries. Still, but it still counts as a TV... I mean, uh, you know what? Miniseries, I'd, a long miniseries, or I guess you it's could say... five like long miniseries. Five miniseries. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. that's really what it is. And, uh, and you know, I think that um, uh, Dexter kind of does the same thing. Um, Not and seen any episodes. I... I'm fine with that approach. I find it interesting. Game of Thrones just uh, very much does does that. It's mm-hmm. just a 10-hour-long novel. But it's kind of cheating in a way. Or not that, That's being glib because it is no. very good on its own. But I just think that it's – there's something smug about that approach. You think so? Yeah. I, I, I think that there's, a, there's a tendency to um, – and we'll finally. Well, this will actually bring you back to the spoiler thing. There's a there's a tendency to, for years, think of film as more prestigious than television, right? And um, or or novels as more prestigious than television. Just thinking of television as a low form. Yes. Um, Which is historically what people have always said about any new medium. <laughs> right. They said that about movies. They said it about TV. Now they're saying it about video games. Right. And yeah. that kind of thing. So, um, And so I think when you've got the HBO model where you're not censored, you don't have to, make, you don't have to do act breaks for commercials, um, you can ignore what makes television unique from other filmed uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Now, this prestige thing. Obviously, over the past decade, anyone who's been paying attention has known that TV has grown in prestige. I think that's... yes. I think Sopranos really kicked it off, but um, certainly Lost and then Mad Men and Breaking Bad and uh, a whole slew of things that oh, I'm absolutely. leaving out Deadwood, the, the Wire even as well. Um, it has brought 
to television film fans. Mm-hmm. And that's and, and filmmakers and film actors and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, but I think that's, this is where the spoiler thing comes in. Okay. Um, and why I think it's an, an interesting discussion. By the I way, think, well done on bringing it back to in, the, okay. in this way. That was very organic. Um, I feel like the reason that um, people like um, that, that that the people who Dave whom Dave is writing about um, feel like a week isn't long enough <laughs> for uh, for for the spoiler whatever <laughs> gate to open is because they're kind of treating a a season of television like it's a movie because it comes out on DVD as a season. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's kind of how they're watching it. That's how you and I watched a lot of shows because yep. we, you know, we moved in together about, you know, pretty early in the, at the dawn of the DVD era. Um, we watched 24, the watched first 24, season of 24. We watched most of the Sopranos together yeah. um, before I ended up catching up and watching it live. Um, and, and so I think that this is the reason it's an interesting debate because there are a whole bunch of new people watching TV now, mm-hmm. and they're bringing with it um, a movie mentality. Mm-hmm. And the DVD, DVR, Hulu, blah, 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 blah thing is making it easier to treat a season of television as though it's a movie. Mm-hmm. So is the onus on the critics, the TV critics, to adapt to the new way that these new people are watching movies? Or is the onus on the new viewers to adapt to the way that television has traditionally been treated. I think it's I think it's both. I think it's a shared responsibility. I think I think it's up to the critic to understand that they can they can be they can sit back and be purists and talk about what TV always has been and what it should be, which is kind of what I do and I know. Right. I didn't want to say you, but there we go. <laughs> that is, is um, exactly what I do. Or they can recognize that TV isn't what it used to be and never will be. It has changed. The nature of it has changed. There's a difference. The nature of the, of the medium has changed. See, I'm okay with. There's a difference between the Sopranos changed television. Mm-hmm. It expanded the parameters. The Sopranos <laughs> is Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky. Like, um, good for you going hockey, right? Uh, a player who was so good at the game that the game is different now because, of, like, they literally evolved it. Mm-hmm. Sopranos evolved television, and so I'm okay with that kind of change. What bothers me about The Wire, and it's more, I'll, I'll admit this is more of like a love the band, hate the fans type of <laughs> type of thing, okay. where it's more the people who sing the praises of The Wire that bother me. When, Fair enough. When someone t- says it's the greatest television show of all time, I think they probably don't like television shows very much. Uh, my problem with something like The Wire is it's not trying to change, or ev- it's not trying to evolve television. Mm-hmm. It's trying to come in and say that, Here's a better way of doing it. And, and it's kind of smug because TV has existed for a long, long time. And fantastic shows from Little House on the Prairie to Barney Miller to, uh, you know, MASH to All in the Family to the Dick Van Dyke Show. Mm-hmm. This is all great American art that I just mentioned. And I feel like it gets dismissed by people who think The Wire is the greatest thing to ever happen to television because it is basically just coming in and knocking over the tables and changing other rules. I think <laughs> I do think that uh <coughs> excuse me. If someone who has not seen any number of of shows like even, you know, even I'm not that familiar with 
with all of them, but even I've seen a few episodes of The Honeymooners and Dick Van Dyke and um, MASH, even though, as you know, I'm not a huge fan of MASH, but I've even, I've seen it, but I've also seen Sopranos and Deadwood and Seinfeld and Law and & Order and Twin Peaks and all these other things. Um, and so I do think there are some people who are quick to say this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen on TV. Everything else is shit. And I do think there are people that say that. And it's like, well, that's not, that's not a qualified opinion. You're just but saying But I think it. saying the way you just phrased it right there, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen on TV, mm-hmm. I'm kind of okay with that. But when when they this is the best the best thing the that's best, ever been, that TV no, has ever the produced best TV show right of all time that's what bothers me because I feel like it's and maybe I am a purist or I think um, you are a purist there's no question about it but that's all right I I I'm a purist about other things and so I guess because my my favorite TV show of all time <laughs> I mention it all the time on the show and on my other show is Buffy the Vampire Slayer right and that's it's exactly what TV. Is good. It's following all the rules and making the best thing in the world for mm. me. Uh, but uh, you know, making the best show you can. In that, there's season-long story arcs, there's series-long character arcs, but each individual episode is, in some way, either uh, plot-wise or thematically self-contained. Mm. There's something in each episode that makes it an episode mm-hmm. of TV. Whereas things like The Wire and Game of Thrones, and I'm okay with the approach. It's just not really TV to me in the classical sense are just taking, I mean, Game of Thrones was probably the biggest offender. And by the way, one of the best shows of the past year, I'm I'm agreeing with that, but Game of Thrones was just 10 hours cut into 60 minute pieces. But isn't, let me ask you this, isn't part of the, uh, uh, isn't one of the rules to, to, uh, you know, go back to that phrase, isn't one of the rules commercials? And using that to sort of inform where an act break is going to be and that sort of thing. Like, that's how it's been done. That's an act break within the episode. Right. But they they write that act break knowing full well there's a commercial going on. And that's... It's like, we better hurry up because we we have this many minutes before the commercial comes up. And so it may not... It may be both organic and inorganic exactly the same time because they're including the limits, the limitations of the medium, not to imply it's a pure limitation, but... They're they're taking that into account while also just knowing you know people who made uh, TV and I'm going to say the 80s or 90s at that point the for, the the formula the rules had been so set up that people just naturally think within them uh, much in the same way that people naturally think uh, within the three act structure of a movie even if they don't know it uh, when they go about writing one and so uh, <coughs> so that's the thing I think that commercials and the f- and the fact of a commercial informing where a break will be, mm-hmm. I think that's one of the rules. And HBO sort of did away with that. And so that's one of the rules that has been that, that was dismissed because they because HBO was like, well, we we're a different kind of network. You have to pay for us. And this is and, you know this is this is where I get into this uh, the the difference between it. Uh, the medium evolving as mm-hmm. HBO and The Sopranos specifically mm-hmm. uh, did, and uh, just changing or you know uh, arrogantly trying to improve. Th- that I think is why the honor- the 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 wire will never be more than an honorable mention for me, because there's just something about it as a TV fan that rubs me the wrong way. And it's, and I think that uh, I think TV has evolved. I think now because of 
on, you know, on demand and DVD. But do we want it to evolve in this way? I mean, sort of. I do. And that's I think that's because you are a film fan first. Possibly, yes. Because I don't want it to get to the point where I have to watch an entire season of a show for any of it to make sense. I want to be able to have the season on DVD, but pop in an episode of The Sopranos Mm -hmm. and just watch it. You know, because there's something going on in that episode that is self-contained, you know? Right. It'd be, you know, in... um, I'm not going to spoil anything, uh, by the way. But, like, Sopranos Home Movies, the first episode of the second uh, half of season six, Mm -hmm. which... (laughs) um, You know, I mean, obviously everything that happened before informs what goes on, and it's setting up things that will play out for the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. But the character of Bobby has his own little arc Mm -hmm. in that episode that is uh, just completely emotionally effective on its own. Mm -hmm. And, And it speaks to the bigger themes that that episode is exploring. But that's, let me ask you this, like... The idea, and we've talked about this before on, I mean, it, an entire episode was, was about this topic. Um, the idea of an episode being self-contained, but also existing within the larger context of the story, uh, of, the, of the season. Um, <coughs> why is that a rule, and why is it a rule that can't be broken? Wh- unless, without being charged of, without being you know, somebody charging arrogance. The reason it's a rule is because uh, I'm, make, I'm, I'm differentiating between television as a medium, just mm-hmm. the kind of screen you're watching it on, because at that point it was between watching a DVD or a Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and television as a form of storytelling. Right. And so if it's changing in that way, then you're just watching this thing on a television. It's not actually television, the form that I'm talking and I will, s- and, and I, okay. I just don't want that form to die, because of because of these new ways that people are watching movies. And I do want to suggest, by the way, that the same the same technology that is change that is changing. I won't I won't say evolving, but is changing the way people approach TV. It's changing movies too, by the way. Like movies are made. There are movies. There are just as many, if not more, movies made for the small screen as for the big screen and digital technology. I was just talking about this with a friend of the sh- nah. occasional writer for the show, Josh Long. Uh-huh. He's no friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> I was talking about this uh, with him last night that there are so many like digital things has made filmmaking much cheaper and easier. And it's a shame because film, there is something to it that it's like, you man, know, this is beautiful. This is a great analogy because I know people who are, purist in that way about film right and i don't know what it is in me that makes me not purist about about celluloid versus digital but uh, when it comes to film but when it comes to television i'm very much a purist well now and and i think it has to do with the <coughs> i think it ha- here's why i think it is mm-hmm. i think it's because um and I, I, I know we probably don't need to make this clear but I, we're not i'm disagreeing with what dave chen wrote in the thing right. Um, but respectfully. Yeah. Um, but I think the reason that I hold on to this uh, purist um, element is because there's a difference between someone like digital cinema coming in and saying, look, it's easier now. Right. You know, it's faster, it's cheaper now. 
Whereas the way that people are trying to ta- change television, it's uh, they're saying it's worth more now. It's more important or hefty now because of this new way of approaching the medium. And I, I, f- I feel like it's a disrespect to the way that television has traditionally been and has, you know, I, like you, a lot of geeks listen to this show. Mm-hmm. Um, would you want to see, th- wouldn't you be sad if Star Trek weren't like made up of these little stories telling ongoing Right, but do you want it, do you want The Sopranos to be exactly like Star Trek? So The Sopranos is more like Star Trek than not, and more like Star Trek than people give it credit for. I would I would compare Star Trek to like Law and Order. I mean, it is episodic in to the point where there is no larger thing. Um, there is a larger thing for Star Trek, but in the sense that there's a, a, a larger continuity, but each episode is very self-contained, more self-contained than part of a larger continuity. And so, like, and that's I'm the saying thing is, Sopranos is more like them <coughs> that people give it credit for. Absolutely, but that's the thing is, not everything wants to be that, and I'm okay with them not being that. When I think of Twin Peaks, which of course that's a filmmaker behind that, I don't think of a. Spe- I may think of a specific scene, but I won't think of a specific episode. Yeah, and I'm just saying that's because you're approaching it as a film fan, right? But I think, like but I think the film, film, but I think the the showrunners produced a, approached it as a film fan as well. And what I mean to say I is, I don't think that's true at all. Oh, I, it's. I think you need to watch it again. I, I think it stands. I watched it twice. There's standalone episodes more. There, there's more standalone elements than you remember. Standalone elements or standalone episodes? Standalone there's elements. plenty, of, and that's the thing. Is like elements. I'm. I'm I, I. I agree absolutely. But I'm saying The Wire has almost zero standalone <laughs> elements, and Game of Thrones has pretty much literally zero standalone. I guess it depends elements. on what how you how you define element. There are very few. Either there are occasionally on the wire stories that will introduce themselves and resolve themselves within the same episode. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, there's almost no episode in which a theme is riffed on for an entire episode, which I think is that's that's the art there. That's what makes what makes television unique from from film. You know, mm-hmm. you, I guess you could make there are anthology films mm-hmm. in which each piece is riffing on a different right. idea but you have you know with Buffy every season you had 22 hours less than that 16 something once you take out the commercials um, that are man wouldn't it be great if they had taken out the commercials it's one story <laughs> but it's also 22 short ruminations on an idea of of America or of uh teenageness or of high school or of femininity or whatever that's that's what it's great at and the wire had season long ruminations mm-hmm. and because and that is grander or season long but also i think each character was also its own little rumination in that sense which admittedly is much more literary than it is uh yeah televisionary televisual oh nice <laughs> Um, anyway, we've been going on too long. It's 25 minutes in at this point. So, man, oh um, we'll and, that, and this has so little to do with the topic today. Yeah, no, it has nothing to do. But I just, uh, I, I just want to say that, you know, I, I understand. I'm not completely on board with the Gawker thing. I mean, I think within mm-hmm. reason, 
you should be allowed to spoil things within a week. But that's basically if I'm behind on episodes of of Justified, I just don't read anything about Justified until I'm caught up. And I think, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't spoil anything from season two of Justified on this podcast because I it would be wrong of me to assume <laughs> that people who are listening have seen it. So it, it, it ha- definitely context has to do a lot has a lot to do with it. And I think what you're doing there is you are taking a certain degree of responsibility as the viewer and as the critic. And mm-hmm. I think that's what it needs to be is both people need to rec- you know both groups need to recognize like if so- it's like Sopranos for example would you spoil anything from the Sopranos on this show? Um I think there was a time I might have. Okay. I I wouldn't now. I know we Actually, I think this has to do with with Dave again to keep bringing it back to him. But there was a time a while ago that you and I mentioned a character's death on Lost, a season three death. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, I think we were already after season five, and we mentioned it without thinking, and we got some flack for it. I think from uh, from Dave in particular and some mm-hmm. other people. And because of that, I've come to realize like this isn't the forum. So. I will. I, s- I wouldn't. But let's say. Th- let me say this real quick. Lost was going on at the time, by the way. But and it's I not, feel like that. It's not all one movie. That's what bothers me. That we're we're going to keep going in circles if we keep bringing it back to this. Mm-hmm. It's, um. Yes. Yeah, so people should take it upon themselves to catch up on their own, and also remember that for years DVR didn't exist. Sometimes you'd miss an episode because you had a thing to go to, yeah. and being spoiled for what happened the week before isn't the end of the world. It was almost kind of necessary if you were going to watch the next thing. Because, like, yeah. well, I did somebody tape it? No? Okay, well, I yeah. guess. So what happened? I think it's. Um, I think the critics have some responsibility not to spoil you if you're in an arena where you shouldn't expect to be spoiled. Mm-hmm. You, you, as a viewer, have some responsibility not to go into an arena where you think you'll be spoiled. Mm-hmm. And also, everyone just needs to take TV spoilers a little less seriously. Well, I think it's spoilers not as big a deal. It's, frankly, spoilers aren't as big a deal in TV as they are in movies. That's a that's a big part of what I'm getting at. And you know, and on my you know on my other show, uh, more than one lesson episode every month, I guess. Anyway, yeah, you spoil the Bible the Bible all the time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> would have been funnier if I were able to get it out and not said bubble. <laughs> but uh, you know that that I mean, I talk about movies thematically, and I pick one. I pick one newish movie and one older movie, but chances are the older movie is one that not many people have seen, like, you know, The Man in the Glass Booth or whatever. Yeah, but you also say, here's the movie I'm going to talk about. Exactly. Like, it's the name of the thing. And so I feel like, okay, I've done everything I can, admittedly, occasionally, but not always. But when I think of it, I'll be like, hey, by the way, spoilers. Like, I feel like I don't need to, but at the same time... You know, I yeah, I think I if do appreciate your show and knowing okay, it looks like the next forty five minutes are going to be about Memento. I probably should have seen Memento before I right. watch it. And it used to it used to bother me that uh, people, when like friends would be like, "Well, I didn't listen to that episode because I didn't see that, I didn't see it." And part of me is like, "Well, then get to like," I was just like, "Well, see it and listen to the episode." But then <laughs> I was just like, "You know what? I'd much rather you not see the movie uh, or uh, not listen to the episode." And just wait until you can appreciate it because it's not going to mean anything to you. And so if you haven't, you know, what I have to say thematically isn't going to mean anything to you if you haven't seen the film. And so I do think that it's, it's a frustrating thing because some people say that any kind of spoiler in any forum, no matter how much, unless you give several minutes worth of warning, mm-hmm. 
that that it's like well that's that's terrible it's like uh how about this a little like 10 to 15 second warning if it's gonna happen but at the same time for a show like ours what if we're going but i still have more to say i know all right keep going for a show like ours okay for example the the topic today we're talking about movies that have a certain thing in common and we're going to be and it's possible we could spoil one of the movies and it's likely that somebody somewhere has not seen that movie and yeah. we might wind up spoiling something and we'll try not to spoil anything too big right but sometimes you need to if you're going to talk about it and i don't know it's it's frustrating because these days it's such a I don't know. It can be a very limiting thing if you decide I'm not going to spoil anything ever at any time. You know, this is a free flowing conversation with an old friend, and sometimes it's easy to forget there's mics, and sometimes it's just there. Yeah. You know, and I don't know. It's. I uh, think I've become as a, just like with a TV with movies thing here. As we've that was a fucked up sentence. That's all right. Um, as we've done I, this I blame the for, bad beer. As, yeah, as we've done this for four years, I think I've become more responsible about spoilers. I'm sure I'll get emails telling me that mm-hmm. that's not true, but I think I have bec- become more responsible. But um, I want to, real quick, before we move in, move on and talk about the topic, I want to say, because it sounded like the thing I tossed off at the end of my last bout of talking mm-hmm. uh, was tossed off when I said spoilers aren't as important in TV as they are in movies, but I want to elaborate on that. On that. A movie is two, two and a half hours. Mm. So, a twist or a reveal, um, or even just a plot element, is percentage-wise a much bigger part of it. Plus, mm-hmm. it's a movie is theoretically one thing. Yeah. So, anything that's a part of it is a part of the whole. Um, and that's true in TV, too, but more so in movies. So, that's why a spoiler is a big deal in a movie, <coughs> uh, because it's a big part of the thing. Whereas, even if I were to right now spoil what happens in the last episode of Lost... And, you know, what the secrets are. Uh, not Where <laughs> Hurley murders everyone. Right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, or what we find out, you know, about the Magic Island. There is a Magic Island in Lost. I'm sorry if that's a spoiler. Um, Magic? <laughs> you know what? I, I thought it was like Castaway. Um, um, I just feel like, yeah, some people might say that my even saying it was magic was, it was, I was being glib. I'm not saying whether or not it's magic or it's, time travel or it's scientific experiments i was just being glued. the very con you just said time travel i wouldn't have even thought of time travel if you <laughs> okay. hadn't said it uh what i'm saying is if, if i were to spoil the last episode of lost for you i would not have spoiled the show lost mm-hmm. just like and this is a debate that happened when lost ended because a lot of people were upset with the ending being upset with the last episode of lost doesn't mean that the last six years of your life were wasted it was a, it was a good show, more times than not throughout those six years. Right. I mean, I think I think I can say that objectively. I mean, I'm obviously a big fan. I like more episodes than most people do, but I think more often than not, it was a good show. And that's the difference between TV and movies. the en- The ending of a TV show sucking doesn't mean the show sucked. Yeah, because it gave you and this and you and I had this discussion with The Sopranos, but very much with Lost because people really responded to that. And I'm a. I, I'm of the opinion that like a finale or something of any TV show is probably going to wind up being disappointing, <laughs> if not the entire last <laughs> season, true. because after years of watching, what could possibly satisfy your expectations? And so at that point, it's, so you need to look at it as years of entertainment 
as opposed yeah. to and no matter what the creators of Lost or the producers of Lost said, this wasn't a story that started at the beginning of the first episode and ended at the end of the last one. Right. They didn't have it all planned out, no. and I it would have been a shitty show if they had. It would have been boring for probably most of the first two seasons. I wouldn't have gotten a third mm-hmm. if it had been like that. They were telling a show week to week, mm-hmm. and they were developing larger themes and larger uh, a larger mythology as they went. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's all one big story. Right. You know, there's a thing called, you know, like exposition, rising action. You know, if if a six-season TV show followed this sort of Aristotelian narrative arc, it would be really boring for a lot of it. She's like, yes, we get it. You're the mentor. Um, all right. That's 34 said, minutes. Yeah. If a movie does... W- it, it, never mind. Okay. Yes, fine. Okay, so Lost involved a lot of people with father issues, okay. you know, uh, which, uh, you know, father could be seen to stand in for any number of of authority figures or, or, or masters of one sort of, or another. That's right. Um, and there were some struggles with that, with those authority figures. So we're going to expand on that Lost conversation this week by talking about anti-authoritarian films. Yes. So let's get into it, shall we? All right, so here's uh, sorry about that, everybody. It's you know it's weird when uh, when the top of the show discussion is that is that long because then it's like I feel like now there are two topics in this in this and I'm, I'm, we've done it before and you know what I didn't expect it to be that long when I, I should have mm-hmm. because I knew you and I would disagree yeah um, and that leads to longer topics because we're long winded nerds and we like to try to convince each other of things yeah. <laughs> I just, uh, I just so want to be heard. Was it? I just want to be heard. That's all. But I think that was, um, I, 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 you know, I'm not in the forum all that often. <laughs> uh, Nor am I. But um, take it to the forum because I think this is a conversation that needs to. I'll go you one better. Take it to the streets. Take it to the streets. <laughs> uh, protest TV spoilers or people who don't like TV spoilers. <laughs> um, I think it's a conversation that needs to happen because whether I like it or not, um the ways the options for viewing tv have changed mm-hmm. and there are there is a n- there's a number of people watching tv differently now yes it's not not everyone i wouldn't i'm not even sure that it's the majority of people um but it's a, there's a vocal minority of people watching tv differently and that's only going to grow as technology you mentioned the technology thing i'm going to have to get used to it and so is everyone else on both sides of the issue uh going to have to get used to the new the new mediums of the media of watching and the old medium of television. So this is a conversation that's, that needs to take place. And it's and there's the third group of the artist because the artist also would be remiss right. if they completely ignored it. So here's yeah. what happened. Okay, uh, anti-authoritarian film. Yeah. Um, so as you know, my friends and I have a weekly movie night, and uh, last week we were going to watch Gimme Shelter, the Rolling Stones documentary, and then we realized through a uh, uh, – series of misunderstandings nobody had it so we're like (laughs) okay well what are we going to do and uh it was fourth of july weekend so we all decided we would vote on what we wanted and uh, everybody put forth a candidate and so Mm -hmm. it was between um it was between uh in the loop wag the dog and the blues brothers all right and uh i put the blues brothers out there because i hadn't seen it in a while (laughs) And we wound up watching that. We watched the Blues Brothers, and uh, and I've always loved that. Let me ask film. you a question. Yeah, Orange Whip, Orange Whip, three Orange Whips. All right. Um, 
man, oh man, that movie's funny. There, there <laughs> are movies like that movie's like 1980. So, yeah. and there are movies that like you get 30 years out. Some of those jokes are a little, a little stale. Yeah. Man, that movie's got plenty of solid, yeah. solid jokes. I'll say this: this might be a little controversial. If you are like 18 or older and you haven't seen Caddyshack yet, don't bother. Uh, yeah, it, I can see it, that. It, it's just not something you need to see. You either need to see it close to the time it came out or when you were younger and it seemed more outrageous. It's got some great stuff. Rodney Dangerfield is awesome in it, mm-hmm. but you don't need to see it. Yeah, it's... Whereas, yeah, Blues Brothers... Um, only gets better yeah, the more Go- times i Ghostbusters, Trading Places, like mm-hmm. these are comedies from the 80s that that should be seen. Pure One Imports. That My friends and I kept saying that. <laughs> it's when they're driving through the mall and they're commenting yeah. on things and then there's one moment when Elwood simply goes... Pure One Imports, <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and then, of course, the cop car. Uh, the I'm sorry, not their cop car. The cops chasing them drive through Pure One Imports. Yeah, I but also there's so many little things <laughs> like uh, you got my cheese whiz. You got my cheese whiz bar. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's delightful. And <coughs> and yeah, and so in watching the Blues Brothers, I started thinking like those that have seen it. Uh, y- you know, of course, about the sheer number of car crashes. And the vast majority of those cars, cops. <laughs> and we take so much pleasure in that, in seeing these dumb cops chasing and failing to apprehend these guys that are n- undoubtedly criminals. There's no question <laughs> about it. Maybe even sociopaths, because uh-huh. at this point they're saying, I'm on a mission from God. <laughs> like, there's a lot going on there. And so, and that they use that to justify all kinds of actions. And so, you know, if, if this were a different kind of movie, you and I have talked in the past about, like, you know, we watch a Michael Bay film and we think about all the collateral damage uh-huh. and we think like, oh, innocent people are being hurt. I don't think about that with the Blues Brothers, especially well, Michael Bay took pains to have Joe Pantoliano say, yeah. thank God no one was hurt. You're lucky no one was hurt. We brought that up. <laughs> episode one. We mentioned that episode one. Yeah. After we've seen 25 cars be crushed or fly off a bridge. <laughs> thank you. are lucky no one was hurt. Yeah. And so whereas the Blues Brothers like. We see all those cop cars. Like, at the very least, one of those cops has gotten hurt. We know they broke his watch. <laughs> that we know. But uh, oh, I need to see it again, too. So as, I was, so as I was watching it, I just realized, like, why am I taking so much? It's not merely that I'm laughing. I am taking a deep satisfaction from watching all these cops get theirs. Even though, as far as I can tell, they're all just regular guys. But they represent the authority and it is whether it a, whether it's a comedy or a drama or like a conspiracy film you'll find it a lot in those uh there's something inherently satisfying about movies that either question an authority figure and that authority figure could be the government it could be religion it could be a boss you know uh, horrible bosses comes out this weekend and mm-hmm. so like there's just it's it's a theme that you'll find in a lot of movies, and it and it's because it appeals to something in us, which I find yeah, interesting. I think there's multiple things going on. I think, um, excuse me, you mentioned Independence Day, and I don't want to pretend that anti-authoritarianism is uh, solely the realm of Americans, mm-hmm. but it is. I mean, we are a country that was born from revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it is kind of a part of our national identity. It's how we, it's how a lot of us define ourselves. Yeah. Uh, consciously or subconsciously, we do think of ourselves as sort of rogues or rebels. You know, if, I don't want to get into a political thing. Like a lot of times that is used against us um, by, by uh, those who are savvy in the media and in propaganda and mm-hmm. in manipulation. But I do think it is something that we feel about ourselves. Um, but I also think you need to take into account the type of people who make movies. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's who make any art at all, really. These are traditionally not people who have fallen into the status quo, mm-hmm. and they feel probably oppressed by it. Yeah. You know, especially you know, you know, when you're younger, there's a real pressure to conform. Um, it's probably in, innate in us for a, a civilizing. Uh, <laughs> effect and mm. probably is somewhat helpful i think to a certain extent the pressure to conform helps you not become a fucking psychopath as you get older mm-hmm. um but at the same time it's um it is uh stressful and even sometimes traumatic for uh for a kid and um the more someone has trouble fitting in the more likely they are to be squeezed out of the of of childhood in the form of an artist, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's that's why we get this in in movies and literature so often. And it's and it's interesting to me because uh, I actually, by the way, I have The Wire written on here. It's the only TV show I have written on there, um, because that's one that, of course, at all in every season, in some way, shape, or form, it takes something that is an authority of some kind, and breaks down why it doesn't work and but i feel like that doesn't necessarily tap into um the american thing i was talking about or or even the innately human thing which is so emotional Mm -hmm. the wire was intellectual in its anti-authoritarianism whereas something like one flew over the cuckoo's nest doesn't exactly it, it it's not exactly a dissertation on why this guy is being held down or what led to the system working the way it does. It's just about him raging. Yeah. And that, that tap taps into something. And, uh, you know, the wire could occasionally have some very, a lot of very poignant moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not about, that. I think it had some poignant, uh, maybe not poignant moments, but they did. De- there definitely was an emotional reaction in, in the wire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm going to speak in generalities okay. where of course, Anyone will tell you the show is about a breakdown in insti- in our institutions. And, of course, one could substitute that with authorities. because. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's interesting is that often when we, the viewer, are most frustrated with those authorities are when is when somebody who was sort of anti-authority suddenly gets into this position of power and rather than you know them changing the nature of the the game as it is often referred to in the show um mm-hmm. the game changes them and they're just as bad as everybody else and and it's that idea of like you know power corrupts well authority corrupts like the minute you become an authority figure you suddenly it's like well shoot now i need to be this I don't think I understood it before. Now I understand there's other considerations and many people would call that person like a sellout or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
and there's such an intense feeling of disappointment because you would put so much of your hope into that. I mean, and I feel like, honestly, right now, a lot of people feel that way about someone like our president who ran on hope and change, and some people uh, who voted for him are very frustrated, and they felt they feel like in some ways he sold out. I'm not going to say what I feel, but I know yeah, that some people... Yeah, I don't want to be too afraid for, uh, of us to talk about our politics, because this mm. is something else, uh, you know, um, I got a very respectful email this week about my politics. Um, is, this wasn't an argument. This wasn't mm. someone that I'm angry at. It was a, it was a good email. Um, and I just want to... Just because we disagree with maybe what you believe doesn't mean we think you're stupid or wrong. Right. And there so are plenty I, of... I feel like... I know that we're the ones with the microphones, and I guess the we hear, we have the Internet's bully pulpit here to some extent. Um, that bully pulpit's getting smaller, by the way, the more <laughs> people get a podcast and yeah. start a blog. Um, but just because I believe a certain thing doesn't mean that I'm trying to convince you to believe it necessarily i'm ca- i'm okay with people you know i mean again we don't talk about it at great length but you're much further to the right than i am mm-hmm. and i'm much further to the right than a lot of my friends yes um and it's uh it's all very respectful you know it I can th- be it should be yeah it, yeah i mean among us it's all very respectful i mm-hmm. think the you know the problems that i have had with um recent Republican leaders have less to do with my disagreeing with their stances on things and more to do with the nature of their discourse about it. And that is, uh, and that's actually because people... Content uh, versus craft. Oh, absolutely. It applies to life too, David. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and I guess I'll use that, use that as, a, as a, uh, a segue into, of course, what I think you'll probably find the most when it comes to Movies that are anti-authority. It's uh, it's anti-government. I was going to segue too, but okay. in a different way. So. Okay, um, not even anti-government as a concept, but mm-hmm. the way it is put out there. And I remember well, one let's of my put that on hold actually. Okay. I want to mention one film because I want to address the sellout thing. Okay, and mention a film that I think if people haven't seen it, they should see. It's one of my favorites of all time. It didn't quite make my top ten list, but it is a movie that I can watch at any time. Uh, it's Alex Cox's Re- Repo Man, mm. which I think you watched. I had seen it before, but you watched it with me. Yes, I your did. Your first yes. time, um, and that's very much a movie about a punk rock kid becoming a repo man, essentially the man. I mean, he's taking possessions away from people who are suffering yeah. financially, or whatever. He's the man, and just it's kind of a cynical movie, realizing that all oh, these people you think are holding you down are just as like fucked up and useless and on their own. Is anybody else? It's uh, the Rebel Man is a very sort of whimsically hilarious, sad, cynical movie. And I and actually, I'm glad that I'm glad that you went back to that because, of course, a movie that you and I talk about frequently, uh, whether we like it or not, uh, which is usually not, is uh, Fight Club. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I and maybe this is maybe the book does this better than the film. Um, it, one one thing that I like about it thematically is the idea that. Here we have Tyler Durden, this, you know, this kind of very contrarian anti-authority, you know, that just the embodiment of that. Uh, and then, of course, he puts himself up there. He starts something and then suddenly becomes the authority and in many ways becomes. I mean, fascistic is the word that's usually that, that's used, mm-hmm. but he becomes 
a much more dangerous and reckless authority than any of the authorities that he was rebelling against. Mm -hmm. And so, and that, and that goes to what I was saying, which is anytime, no matter what your philosophy is politically, spiritually, whatever you get in a position of authority, watch out (laughs) because you're probably, you you are as far as movies go and maybe in life, you're the problem now. Yeah. You're the man. Yeah. You know? So, uh, so yeah. And, and I wanted, and speaking of those men, um, the uh, one of my favorite lines of all time, and I don't just mean in regards to movies, I mean in life, <laughs> uh, comes from All the President's Men, and it's said by uh, the character of Deep Throat, played by uh, Hal Holbrook, in which he's describing All the President's Men, he's describing the, you know, the, the staff, and he says, these are not really, not very bright guys. And it, it changed the way I, that line got me thinking in a different way <laughs> about government, about businesses, about, you know, movie characters or whatever, and about friends. And in that moment, I, I actually had a surprising amount because he says it with a, with a great deal of contempt. I look at it and realize, and as strange as it sounds, it has given me a great deal of compassion for authority figures. Because that's when I realized, like, they're just guys. Like, they mm-hmm. may be doing something illegal. There's no question about it. And well, I don't I have think, sympathy with that. I think, be it um, in politics or in business or whatever, uh, ambition is a more helpful trait in getting ahead than intelligence. Right. And I guess there's some compassion in the human level, but I think uh, amb- ambition is... Maybe sympathy is what I meant. Not yeah. necessarily compassion, but yeah, that's a good I could point. relate to them in a, in a great deal. A- ambition yeah. is generally painted as a good attribute, and in a lot of ways it is, but it has a very, very dark side as well. Yeah, and, and it's one of those things... Like, The reason that that line affects me is because when somebody is rebelling against the government or if somebody is praising the government or whatever, we think of the government as one word, and I always picture it as a wall, an <laughs> impenetrable fortress... But it's not. It's just people. It's just... Now, they might be doing something wrong, and some of them are smart, some of them aren't. And in that sense, I don't know, it it gave me a surprising amount of... I'll use the word hope, because you realize, like, especially, I would say, in this country, and we we talked about this a little bit when we talked about movies about the government, Mm -hmm. which is, you realize, like, yeah, it's not... In spite of what... Oliver Stone might think we'll get to him in a minute. Uh, you know, it's it's not just this. You know, it's not a. It's not like a comic book villain who just con- who's like this puppet master yeah. and controls absolutely everything and and can account for anything you might do. Well, let me get on a political high horse for a second. Oh, here, good. All right. My soapbox, at least. And this is neither leftist nor rightist, but just we need to. Public school systems should have civics as oh, a mandatory right. class that you take because the main thing that people need to learn, and it's a shame they have to learn it because it should be innate in Americans mm-hmm. at this point, is that to us, the government should be us. The government mm-hmm. shouldn't be a villain or a wall or any of these things that is separate from us. We should be the government. And in theory, we are. We still have a voice. There are people trying to suppress it at all times. But we still have a voice because we live in a representative democracy, mm-hmm. uh, a republic, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that's my soapbox. Again, neither left or right, but 
the gov- the government is us. That's what I want to say. And that is one of the things that that I think you can get out of uh, movies like All the President's Men, or even something. Well, okay, JFK is a little rough because that really puts it out there mm-hmm. that you can't beat them. But to go with another Oliver Stone film, Nixon, that's one that shows that this guy may ha- may be the most powerful person in the world. But he is still just a person and is yeah. brought down more by his own idiosyncrasies than by anything else. And, and now, of course, in these, like, in Oliver Stone, like, his movies are anti-authority to their core. They question authority in their core, even if there aren't characters that question authority. Because in Nixon, it's told from his point of view, and you don't see Woodward and Bernstein. You don't see the opposition. You see him and his kind of yes-men. And, uh, and so there's that, but... It's still anti-authority because of the way it approaches a deeply flawed man being given the you know the keys to the kingdom mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And so, oh, go ahead. Um, well, I just wanted to move on. Um, okay, go a ahead. Couple, a couple of movies. I talk about, I mentioned One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as being sort of purely emotional and about uh, rage and rebellion. And then The Wire as being something that's almost purely intellectual. Um and I want to talk about a couple of things that kind of fall in the middle. There's a very emotional element to both these movies, but they also kind of have this intellectual message, which is the same as my message that if we want it, we can still have the power. Mm-hmm. Um, and the two movies, well, I'll just mention them both at once are Fritz Lang's Metropolis and Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus. Hmm. Both movies that end in is. Yeah. Oh, nice. <laughs> um, uh, and it, in both cases they're they could be seen as maybe, um, communist, um, I think Spartacus probably kind of intentionally by uh, yeah I mean uh, by by some of the screen screenwriters, mm-hmm. um, but what they're you can se- you can set that aside and they're really about the power of the people, mm-hmm. you know we're not um, we don't we're either not or we don't have to be living in a world that is stratified between. Um, haves and have nots um each depends on the other and therefore each has a voice you know and the 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 mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart mm-hmm. i had to stop and remember the line from metropolis yeah um i can't think of any lines from and, and of course i am spartacus right which <laughs> it's i mean you're you know you laugh at that because yeah. it's the one line we all know except <laughs> for the clam line that has been added in <laughs> but uh it's but that you know that scene is notable that Spartacus in the film represents fighting against the authority and so of course in the context of the scene where it's everybody standing up so that he is not singled out but they're also in saying I am Spartacus what they're they're empowering themselves and saying I can be this guy too I can be what he represents and yeah I find that scene is actually I find it incredibly powerful so, more so as i've as i've gotten older because in context it has power and then it thematically i think it has even more mm-hmm. um and it is one that sort of it, it empowers the individual and uh, <laughs> worth comparing to another movie that's not quite as good but i still have a soft spot for uh mel gibson's braveheart hmm. which um i feel like there there are slight differences whereas at the end Everyone is brought up to the level of Spartacus. Everyone who down there is brought up to the level of Spartacus because mm-hmm. they all are Spartacus. That's mm-hmm. kind of the point. Whereas Mel Gibson, in his sort of, uh, you know, 
Catholic indoctrinated, indoctrinated like messianic approach. Like, not everyone can be William Wallace to him. William Wallace is an extraordinary man, and mm-hmm. that's um, it. That's what's needed: extraordinary individuals who uh, sacrifice or martyr themselves mm. um, in order for it, 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 you know, for the greater good. I think that's why. But in there, in maybe the Braveheart is though it's you know, and we're Americans talking about this. Obviously, Braveheart takes place in Scotland, but it's an American movie, mm-hmm. American made, American financed, uh, you know, starring a kind of uh, American Australian guy. Um, uh, I feel like Braveheart might actually be more about the American ideal than Spartacus is, because um, Americans believe that any individual can. There's the American dream. Any individual can rise up and make his uh, his or her own place in the world. But it's still, you know, we are, there's still a bit of that rugged individualist in us. Mm-hmm. And it kind of has to be about one person. I think the average American viewer watching Braveheart um, is going to think of himself as William Wallace and not as one of the guys whose responsibility it is to live up to his... Um, example, you know, and that's kind of because American is a America is a traditionally Christian nation as well. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a strong Jesus uh, analogy with William Wallace, mm-hmm. of course, and 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 as as, as you well know, uh, you know the uh, the the idea of one of the tenets of Christianity mm-hmm. is to try your hardest to be like Jesus, mm-hmm. even though you know you never can be right. Um, and, as and, and as embodied by Angus. McFadgen in that who uh-huh. is often inspired by William Wallace and tries to make a difference but keeps finding himself failing mm-hmm. but then when f- when finally faced with the ultimate sacrifice only then is he able to sort of associate himself with that that gives him the final boost of inspiration to be a better authority figure mm-hmm. and a better leader and that sort of thing yes i'd say that's we all we all think we're you know, we we all wish we were William Wallace, but I think in in actuality we're much more Angus McFadden. Yeah. Whereas Spartacus, on the other hand, is a more mm-hmm. um, socialist communist mm-hmm. thing, where we can be any one of them because they all are Spartacus. Anyone, everyone, if they work together, is capable of the same thing. And it's socialist in the sense that by all of them saying they're Spartacus, they all lose their identities. Uh-huh. All right. Now then, uh, I took a Russian hey. and Soviet history class. That's right. I, hey, I'm no communist. I don't know. Yeah, it's ridiculous communism. <laughs> It's a pipe dream. That oh, okay. I'm sure we're probably we might piss somebody off when we say this, but maybe you said this in high school. Maybe you heard this in high school. Um, I don't want to cast aspersions, but everyone said this, including me. Where uh-huh. it's just in high school where they when you first learn about communism and they're like, like you know, hey, communism is a good a good idea in a perfect world. It's like, so you're saying it's a bad idea <laughs> yeah. because it's not a perfect world. <laughs> so what you just said means nothing. Yeah. It sounds very smart, but well, it's um, yeah. Was it? I know this is a quote that's been worn to the ground, but it's one of my favorites of all time. I think it was Winston Churchill, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other ones. Yeah, I'd say that's about right. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how it works. And I'm sure I'm sure some of our Chinese listeners would be very offended. Oh, wait, we don't have any. Wonder why. Okay, <laughs> now then. Uh, that sounded terrible. Sorry, everybody. But uh, I think I'm bothered more by just that high school thing that people say. <laughs> that, to make themselves well, you know sound what? so smart, and I said it too. Let's talk know. about China. Okay, um, I 
recently, if you read the website, we occasionally do these things called movie recommendations. Mm-hmm. A long time ago, it used to be movie of the week, but neither one of us could keep to that schedule. So nah. now we just every once in a while recommend a movie. I've got another one in the uh, in the chamber that I need to to write up. But uh, the last one I did, um, the most recent one was not by me. It was by Matt. Yeah, uh, Mayor of the Sunset Strip, mm-hmm. which is a movie you should see. Um, uh, not just you, Tyler, but anyone. I'm um, not saying it. It's, it's very good. Um, but the last one I wrote was for a Chinese movie called The Blue Kite, which I know I've talked about on the show before mm-hmm. because I know that I've always had problems with the pronunciation of the director. But it's something along the lines of Tian Zhuang Zhuang. Sounds good. Something along those lines. Sounds like a thing that could, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the the thing that I wrote for the website, but there's a whole slew of these movies um, that came out in the 80s and 90s in China. Um, mostly they were historical epics. We talked about probably a couple of them way back in episode 60, I think, when we did our Zhang Yimou oh, yeah. um, uh, retrospective profile episode. You know, he has uh, Judo and To Live, um, and then, yeah, this guy has The Blue Kite, and uh, Chen Kaigi has um, Farewell, My Concubine. Hmm. I just have to slow down when I say that. Or else I say feral, my concubine. Colin Farrell? Yeah, Colin Farrell. <laughs> no, I'm my feral concubine. <laughs> um, She's a minx. Um, and, you know, we, as much as I love to talk about this American rebellious spirit, it's kind of nothing compared to what these guys did. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the guy who made The Blue Kite was, like, banned from making films in China for, like, over a decade, you know, uh, Gong Li, who was, um, again, I'm repeating, after four years, I'm going to repeat myself, four and a half years at this point, almost, um, I'm going to repeat myself, but um, if you only know Gong Li from her American films, Memoirs of a Geisha and My- Miami Vice, you don't know her work, because she's actually a great actress, she's just really bad with English, and apparently at picking English language projects, um, uh, but Gong Li uh, also has suffered you know her career has suffered at times because of films that she chose to make so uh yeah as you know i'm we've got some ballsy filmmakers over here but my respect for guys like tian zhuang zhuang uh, zhang yimo and chen kaigi is uh off the charts because of these films that they made and i should actually talk about what the films are about um they're about uh living under mao Mm-hmm. essentially and um uh you know there's a in in the blue kite specifically there's kind of a almost if it weren't so horrible it would be almost comic mm-hmm. kind of like the wire you know if it weren't so horrible the effect that these broken institutions are having on everyone it would be kind of funny how like incompetent and like mired in bureaucracy everything becomes mm-hmm. um and the and the blue kite shows the way that the permanent revolution um, mentality needed enemies and scapegoats, and so just to keep it, just to feed it, mm-hmm. people who were innocent would be accused and jailed and sometimes executed, perhaps. Hmm. Um, and and, uh, and and that it's almost a I mean they sort of the way that the government and the permanent revolution keeps eating up the kids' father figures in the blue kite hmm. is, again, it would be comic if it weren't so horrible. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm glad that you mentioned bureaucracy because that is something that you'll find in a lot of movies that are like anti-authority. Because what? Name one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was uh, I've been watching in preparation for a podcast I'm going to be on, and admittedly because I love watching them, I've been watching the Harry Potter films, uh-huh. and uh, and it's always interesting because, of course, the authority there you would think it's. Dumbledore, but it's not. The th- he is an authority figure, but he's also a mentor and a father figure. Mm-hmm. The authority is, of course, the Ministry of Magic, which yeah. could not be more bureaucratic, as embodied. As I, I'm going to say, the more I think about it, um, Dolores Umbridge is one of the best villains I've ever seen. Yeah, in life, like it, I, I hate her more than I hate more than I hate villains. Voldemort. Because she does it with a smile, and she does it with complete belief in her rightness, and with just such a rigid inflex—just inflexibility, I guess—is inherently rigid. But like, yeah. But and there, there's also the, um, yeah. I mean, you, you're what you say there. The the complete belief is part of a an anti-intellectualism hmm. or anti just. Don't question. Is, Don't question. Is kind of why that's why she's so hateable to me. Yeah, and ju- and that like she uses like this little torture thing and and all that, but and that she represents, of course, you know Cornelius Fudge, who's the the minister and all that, and just that this whole that the entire institution of the Ministry of Magic, because they so badly don't want to acknowledge something that is a fearful reality, which is that Voldemort is back and all that sort of thing, because they simply don't want to acknowledge it, just the sheer power that comes that comes against Harry and Dumbledore and all that sort of thing is astounding and, and exhausting. And it's the kind of thing where I'm so invested in Harry's plight in the fifth film because you just, her... Her complete unwillingness to hear anything that anybody could say and and just to shoot it down as lies, even when he tries to make, as you say, an, an argument of, oh, well, I guess this guy just died for no reason. And I guess I'm lying for no reason. Mm-hmm. And just her just shouting him down. And and of course, it makes she gets two little moments of comeuppance, which are nice. One by the Weasley twins. And that's, of course, a very whimsical moment mm-hmm. uh, in in which they have decided to rebel in the sense where they could actually get kicked out of school, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. they're rebelling to the point of expulsion, and you realize, and it's a fun, funny moment, but you also realize, like, wow, they're really sacrificing something yeah. to rebel against her fascism. And yeah. then, of course, at the end... They're like the Weather Underground. That's what the big W stands for in the fireworks <laughs> afterwards. And so, uh, and then at the end when, uh, when she... Hold on. Okay. I know. I always have to, like, qualify. I am not a supporter of the Weather Underground and what they did. Right. Let's just move on. Okay, fair enough. Uh, but then at the end, and this, is, and this goes back to what I was saying before about a bureaucracy or this big monolithic thing, it really is just made up of people... And so Umbridge, without the full weight of the ministry behind her, it's just her, and she takes the kids out to the woods and finds that she's been tricked and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Because, 
when it comes right down to it, she's powerful, but she is just one person and can be thwarted. And uh, and the idea of just, I don't know, I think the films in, in general are also a little anti-authority, much in the same way as Star Wars, because the Empire and the Ministry of Magic, it can be a force for good, but it could just as easily be a force for evil when the Empire, when the Emperor takes over, when Voldemort takes over. And then, I don't know, it's like the institution is neutral and it can go one way or the other. And so in, you should have an inherent distrust of it because yeah. you never quite know when it's going to change, when it's yeah. going to switch. Well, um, I, I feel like uh, as we've gotten deeper into the Harry Potter series of movies, um, we've seen more of the Ministry of Magic, and it reminds me of nothing so much as Brazil. Oh, yeah. Which, of course, has a lot to do with 1984, so mm-hmm. I feel like. Much like Metropolis and Spartacus, we could talk about 1984 and Brazil side by side. Oh, yeah. Um, But that's... um, That is... Unlike the Blue Kite, it is a... uh, Brazil, at least, is a comic take Mm -hmm. on uh, how bad things could get. But it still is really bad. Like, people die that shouldn't. Yeah. You know, because of bureaucratic mistakes. Yeah. it's uh you know brazil's a, v- a very dark movie which is i guess the only way you can make a comedy about the only way to make a dystopian comedy is by making it dark well yeah and and also somehow i don't know why but if you look at you know catch 22 or doctor strange love sometimes getting people laughing at something helps them to realize how inherently absurd it is like you could you could do it as a drama and people just be like, oh, this is preachy. You do it as a comedy, and you get them laughing, like authentically laughing, and suddenly they're like, this is ridiculous. Uh-huh. And in that moment, I think that's one of the, you know, I'm sure any of the stand-up comedians we've had on our show would say this, but that's the power of comedy as opposed to drama is yeah. they, they kind of Trojan horse a message on you. You mentioned way back to the beginning of this segment, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, In the Loop. Yeah. Which is hilarious, but in retrospect, also devastating. Yeah. To think about, um, you know, much like in where in Brazil in 1984, the bureaucracy has made it so that the people who actually participate don't care about the effect that they're having. Mm-hmm. In the loop, which might be even closer to reality, yeah. um, goes to show how the people who. It's, it goes back to the ambition thing I was talking about before. The people who make decisions that affect all of us are really more interested in winning than in governing or serving mm-hmm. or protecting. Uh, and that's what's really devastating to me, you know, um, it, both because you see how uh, I don't want this to be too much of a spoiler. Um, so I, w- I won't say anything too spoilery, but, um, you know. Um, Malcolm makes decisions left and right that are horrible for human beings, but because he's a fucking freight train moving towards a goal, mm-hmm. you know? And um, at the same time, James Gandolfini's character, who is in essence a good guy, also makes decisions because he has to self-preserve. Mm-hmm. He has to stay around. Uh, and, and so he ends up having to compromise things as well, yeah. Um, and in both cases, this uh, 
you know, this is the downfall of, of each person being an individual, hmm. you know, um, as much as they might represent all of us, they really are acting for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much can you even really blame them for that? You know, uh, especially in a character like James Gandolfini's case, yeah. you know, well, what would you, re- I mean, again, not huge spoilers, but what would you have, what would any one of you have done? In the, in the same situation. And I think I've mentioned this before, that there's a, a, a really wonderful uh, HBO movie called Conspiracy with uh, Kenneth Branagh and Stanley Tucci. Mel um, Gibson, Julia Roberts? That's the one. Okay. And uh, Patrick Stewart? I Is he the one in Conspiracy Theory? I never saw Conspiracy oh. Theory. It's a good, not great movie. Okay. But in Conspiracy, it's, it's just a, it's kind of a chamber piece where it's a bunch of Nazi officers decide like working out the final solution and all of that. And uh, one of them thinks this is a terrible idea and horribly immoral. Spoilers. It is. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, but he doesn't speak up because like he goes along because he, he feels like, well, if I say no, I will be fired at best, killed at worst. And they're going to do it anyway. So perhaps I can affect some minor change and make it a little bit better by stay, by staying in and being a part of it. And it's when I look at his the choice he has to make is like I don't I have no idea what I would do. Yeah, you know that's that's rough. Um, but uh, and, and I, I do want to move on because I didn't want this to just be a retread of our government episode. So I wanted to talk I about. It, I don't think it has been. But I think like. But I don't know so episodes. Okay, so far we just talked mostly about authority as it's presented by government okay. uh, type officials. Yeah, so I definitely have. So I wanted That's to bring what up most of my list is about. So okay, you might be and entering my, into and solo mine too. Territory here. But uh, but I will bring up a couple of things. Of course, uh, one thing uh, to go back to the wire. One thing that I like about it is how it shows bureaucracy and authority in everything, including the criminal world. Yeah, and. That that I think is one of the best aspects of, um, of that show is that it'd be easy to condemn Bill Rawls, but you can condemn, you know, uh, not Stringer Bell. Shoot, Avon, Avon, just yeah. as much I because mean, yeah, again, they have a rigid way of thinking. I, I feel like I have to keep saying this this episode because of our earlier topic, but no mm-hmm. spoilers. But yeah, the the thirst for power. Mm-hmm causes people like Avon and Marlowe to make decisions that um, negatively affect them in the long run. Mm-hmm. Even though I think intellectually they probably know that. Yeah. They know that, that Stringer and Prop Joe maybe are more right mm-hmm. with their more tempered approach to drug dealing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, but it's it's about the power for them and holding on to that power. You know? Just like Rawls and Burrell mm-hmm. and Royce um, all um, ne- need to f- keep their positions before they need to serve the people they're supposed to serve. And so I wanted to bring up a couple other, and of course you can find this in any in any mafia movie where there's a way of doing things. You don't go after a made guy or whatever. But I wanted to bring up a couple. Uh, one of them is, a comedy one's a drama, but both of them deal with just the ridiculousness of, or the, the short-sightedness of, like, the criminal enterprise, uh, especially when it is a structured institution. One is, of course, Get Shorty. Uh-huh. And in which case you have Chili Palmer 
just just rebelling against just kind of wanting to do his own thing. He's pretty low level, but when his when his authority figure is Ray Bones, probably I'm making a lot of big declarative statements. Probably one of the funniest characters I've ever seen. <laughs> um, What's your favorite Ray Bones line? Uh, e- probably E G I E fuck you. <laughs> or or they say they, <laughs> they say, say the, the fucking smog, smog is, is the fucking the reason yes, it's, it's fucking be- beautiful, beautiful fucking, fucking sunsets. sunsets. I also like don't you puke on my fucking shoes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, Harry, is don't. What he said is it don't you puke on my shoes? Just don't puke on my shoes, don't Harry. Puke on my shoes. He goes, well, Harry, don't pass out on me. <laughs> Look at me, Harry. Man, oh man. Yeah, that's a great movie. I'm sure many of you have seen it, but go and watch it. Dennis Farina is a comic gem, uh-huh. especially in that movie, but just in general. So, um, but you you have a character like him who's just who's in it very much for himself, of course. But just how could you ever have any respect for this person? And what's more is they all in the in the mafia and stuff. It's all about like oh, you gotta have respect. It's like look at this asshole, like his whole the whole reason that he's up in the ranks is probably because he's observed some sort of protocol and not because he's actually done anything or there's anything respectable about him. And the idea that you are sub- that you are one of, you know, not an employee, but I don't know, that you're subjected to him uh-huh. and that you have to show some sort of respect and the way that Chili Palmer so frequently rebels against uh-huh. him from uh, I won't even I won't even spoil it because it's it's a comedy and you don't want to spoil a comedy and it's just a yeah. wonderful movie and I feel like that really has that but also I know I can't think of anything as we see in The Wire and in other movies I can't think of anything as narrow-minded as a criminal enterprise because right. it's just like we have our way of doing things it works so whatever and so of course you run across a movie like Bugsy okay. where you have Bugsy Siegel now, of course, he's a criminal. He doesn't really want to be, but whatever. It keeps the money flowing, and he has no really doesn't really respect money, as they say frequently in the film. But he sees it as a means to an end, not an end in and of itself. And so he envisions Las Vegas. Now, of course, it's going to make money, but that's not why he's in it. And, of course, the mob, I guess I'm spoiling life when I say that the hotel, the Flamingo Hotel that he puts out, that he constructs and puts a lot of the, the mafia's money into... Not the mafia. I'm sorry. The because it was it wasn't Italian. It's was primarily Jewish. But the mob's money. Um, although I guess, damn it. Okay, I guess they were inter- They they worked with each other because Lucky Luciano was involved. But um, the he put so much of their money into it, and they don't see immediate return. They're already upset that he's putting their money into this thing more than they were anticipating. But rather, but they don't have his vision because they are not at all visionaries. It's all dollars and cents, completely rigid. And so when it doesn't work out immediately, they kill him. And then, of course, the movie goes on to talk about what? I like that you spoiled. You were like, spoiler alert for this minor thing. And then. What was I going to say? I don't know. But then oh, like, I was going to say. And then they kill him. I spoil. So I'm spoiling life. Bugsy Siegel was killed, but <laughs> because he lost a lot of the mob's money. So sorry. I I knew that going in. I thought everybody did. I, I don't know. Okay, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know what I knew. It's been a while. Okay, I'm sorry, everybody. Bugsy is, by the way, like, it's a pretty good movie that I think gets elevated just in terms of its sheer ambition. Mm-hmm. It's about so much, 
and I really like that. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not a perfect movie. I think it's a. I think it's almost a perfect movie. I think it's great. Right. I think it's a perfect blend of style and substance. Yeah, I, I, much I, like Bugsy himself. Think I, about it. I, I think it it falls short a little bit in some of its maybe um, being a little too measured in its period detail and approach. Mm. Like, kind of drains some of the life out of it for me. That sort of it's sort of like my my feeling on Wes Anderson films. Like, I feel mm. like a lot of time went into the production design here. But I think the rawness of Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. Annette Bening, it, it might, I know people like her in American Beauty, but it might be the best performance she's ever done. And she's been great in a lot of Did stuff. Did you see The Grifters? She's pretty great oh, in The no. Grifters. No, but I, I think Bugsy's probably my favorite. I'd say that's probably true, yeah. But, um, but I think there's a lot of rawness there that I think is missing from like most Wes Anderson films, but you'll find every once in a while. But you see a lot of it in Bugsy. I, but in the, I oh. was thinking about Wes Anderson. Well, I caught some of Life Aquatic on TV the other day, and I was thinking about Bottle Rocket. And Wes Anderson has quite a talent for making guys shooting guns still look wimpy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and thus funny. It's, yeah, it's it is pretty funny, funny yeah. Um, but yeah, and so like with Bugsy, you get a guy who, and so as they show in the last, it, it's very tragic. You, you're very, I'm sorry to have spoiled it and also spoiled it in so flippant a way because you really do feel Bugsy's death and you feel like it's so, you, you're, you're angry at the mob for being so short-sighted. Now, of course, it's in retrospect and we know now what Vegas is and what it has become, but, and then the, the film goes on to say that like uh, this made like, several hundred millions of dollars on this three to four million dollar investments and oh, it made more than that yeah but i think at the time you know right. as far as their involvement right. that's how much they made specifically is it weird that i've never been to las vegas and yet because of movies about it i'm somehow nostalgic for what vegas used to be <laughs> i've never been there yeah you're like oh man it used to be bugsy and now it's fear and loathing yeah, but it's even worse than that now. It's it's the hangover now. Yeah. Um, I remember this back when you know when we first moved to Chicago together. We were like, I think, I I was still only eighteen and you were nineteen probably. Yeah, that's about right. Um, I know it was just after my nineteenth birthday. We we're both nineteen. Um, so neither of us were twenty one. Neither of us were drinking. And I feel like you had an idea of what a bar was mm-hmm. that once you turned twenty one, were able to go to bars. You were kind of robbed of like, oh yeah, no, this doesn't really exist. That's how I feel about Las Vegas. Hmm. Like, I want it to be this, like, gangsters and rat pack thing <laughs> yeah. where everyone wears a fucking suit to go to a casino. Yeah. You know, as opposed to what I see pictures of now or, like, the end of Casino, the movie where people in, like, Umbros and Mickey Mouse t-shirts well, and fanny packs <laughs> are, and flip-flops are trundling around there. And I recently watched the documentary Mr. Warmth. Uh-huh. with And they Which show... I didn't see. It's really interesting, yeah, it's and in and of course, it ta- Don Rickles talks about what Vegas used to be, and that he was a part of that. And it's like, oh, that does sound pretty great. Yeah, we're uh, like Frank Sinatra would come and see him. Like Sinatra wasn't performing; he just happened to be in Vegas and would come and. S- oh man, it sounds awesome. Anyway, have you heard this story about how they met, like became yeah. friends? Okay, people who don't know, like Don Rickles had a party, and invited a bunch of people, and Frank Sinatra came, and they didn't know each other yet at this point. And he goes in, and Don Rickles goes, "Hey, Frank, nice to meet you. Make yourself at home. Hit somebody." <laughs> and like, the whole room went quiet. 
And then Frank Sinatra like laughed and clapped him on the shoulder, and they were like friends. Yeah, from there on out. Oh, very much so. Yeah, what it's a, a good documentary. Is that is that story in the movie? I think so. Yeah, because uh, I haven't seen the movie, but I know that story, and that's it's my favorite thing. Don Rickles, all time great. He's pretty great. I'm a big <laughs> fan of him. But uh, so I, I wanted to bring up those instances, and of course there are many more, like a movie like uh, A History of Violence, mm. in which. Yeah. And the very fact that I just said that, like, brought it up in context of this, means I'm kind of spoiling it a little bit. Yeah, you don't need to. Okay. Uh, we don't need to go into any detail. Right. Especially because we need to wrap up soon anyway. Okay. But I want to mention, this is, has nothing to do with crime, but it does have to do with a sort of society that has, society or um, just purview that has preordained structure to it, and the way that that can... Uh, oppress someone mm-hmm. or a group of people in this case um and this is uh, peter weir's picnic and hanging rock still haven't seen it you got i'll lend you the dvd that's anytime. on it's on watch instantly i just added it oh okay it's yeah. uh it's fantastic um and it you know it's a condemnation of both um sort of victorian mores in general and um uh strict gender roles uh, specifically, mm-hmm. you know, um, and it, it is kind of like you talk about how sad Bugsy is because what happens in that film is kind of inevitable. Yeah, you know, Picnic and Hanging Rock. These these young women don't have they can't rebel because they've been brought up in a system that has trained them to be a certain way for so long that they don't even have the faculty to to fight back you know all they can do is wander off and disappear Hmm. and that's you know i guess the the question i mean that's not a spoiler the people know the picking the hang rock is about people who disappear girls girls who disappeared i didn't know i didn't know that okay if you didn't know it doesn't happen at the end of the movie exactly it's most of that the movie is people searching for girls who Who does the mob kill at the end um but what i'm saying is like the the thing about picking the hanging rock and me sort of saying this out loud is going to make it seem like a more trite message than it actually is, but it leaves you with the question of, are the girls who wandered off and disappeared out there in the desert worse off than the ones who stayed behind and still had to live under this hmm. under this rule? Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, okay, Repo Man and Picking and Hanging Rock, those are the two movies that all listeners need to go check out based on my recommendation this podcast. All right, I wanted to. And you're recommending I, Get Shorty because you don't think enough people have seen it. <laughs> you know what? It here's the thing. It's surprising how many people haven't. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure why. I think uh, is it the legacy of Be Cool? It, you know, it might Painting be that, it? or it might be just the legacy of John Travolta. People think like, right. oh, Pulp Fiction, that was great, but then uh, then he just kind of went. It's like he had a pretty good run there in the mid '90s. What Pulp Fiction? Get Shorty? What else? Uh, Phenomenon. No. Well, like he was in Face Off, which isn't a great movie, but as far as an action movie, it's fine. He I, w- he I, was it, good in Broken Arrow. Yeah, I, that's, Primary I was Colors, say, Civil Action. I d- I don't like I don't really like Face Off or Broken Arrow, but he, yeah, Primary Colors. I didn't think about that one. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, Civil Action. You and I kind of disagree on a little right. bit. Um, but as much as I am not a huge fan of Face Off or Broken Arrow, he's so great as a hammy bad guy. Ain't it cool? Um, even in uh, The Punisher. <laughs> I I like when he's over the top. It didn't work so well in Battlefield Earth. No. Um, but it seems to be a place where he's comfortable. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like him in 
I think Broken Arrow especially, I, I like his performance, even though it's still a really, really dumb movie. Yeah, at least it's at least it's just dumb and not dumb and high concept, because uh-huh. it's just like, oh, that somehow just compounds it. Um, I did want to bring up uh, real quick because I wouldn't, I wouldn't want people to think that like, oh, Tyler's. Uh, Christian and oddly enough in talking about anti-authority movies he's not bringing up any uh, religious figures uh, I wanted to bring up a couple um, one in the movie uh, Chocolat oh yeah which is Alfred Molina Alfred Molina as the not merely the mayor but also the religious mayor uh, in a sort of a rel- kind of a traditional religious community and <coughs> and the idea that the film has a certain degree of sympathy for him but only eventually because we do see that that he's very much like a legalist and and like tries t- and not not only li- tries to force himself to live in this way but also requires that everybody live in this exact way whether they believe in his you know believe what he believes or not and then of course when he eventually fails it is treated as an inevitability that it's like well no one could ever live up to this uh but thankfully and this is where i think the film is it's one of the things I like about the film is that it treats him with forgiveness, but, and this is, but it's a, it's a neat mix because it treats him with the forgiveness that he would not extend to other people, even though what he believes theoretically is all about forgiveness. And hmm. so, um, so in that sense, I think it's, I think it's very, I think it's very, uh, it's a very humane, uh, approach, but, what he represents as an authority figure, I think it's against and, and questions. You know, I liked that movie when it came out when I was 17 or 18. I saw it twice in the theater. Yep. Second time with you. Yep. Um, first time with my friend Catherine. I don't know if she listens, but hi, Catherine. Um, Hello, Catherine. Um, but you know what? I d- that movie doesn't hold up for me very well. It's really saccharine and preachy at the same time. Yeah. But Roger Pratt's cinematography is fantastic. And there's some good performances in there. Alfred Molina is really good. I like Juliette Binoche, and, and of course, I like Judy Dench as well. But there's, yeah, there's parts where it's just like, really, like yeah, the so and so hits Peter Stormare with a skillet and says, like, he says, "I'm no good with a skillet." It's like, really, yeah. this is nominated for best picture. What are you doing? <laughs> and there, back when there was only five, too. And uh, yeah, and um, uh, as much as the Matrix fan in me hates to say it, I've never liked Carrie Ann Moss in anything that wasn't a Matrix movie. Don't tell me Memento, because I don't like her Memento. She uses the word fuck as a crutch. Uh, yes, I'm trying to think of that. But here's... That's in the screenplay as well. Yeah, It's in the screenplay, but part of me wonders... But she hits it too hard. But I feel like her character is hitting it hard. Because she's trying to make a certain impression. Because when she says fuck, it's when she's trying to get him riled up. Yeah, yeah. So... But part of me I wonders think maybe if there, it, if there d- would have been a more there, there could have been a more nuanced and charactery way to do that. Probably yes, I, 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 I agree that I don't I think, think she's she played the role as obviously as anyone else. Right, she doesn't she doesn't really put a personal stamp on it. I actually don't think she's that great in the Matrix either. But I, she's th- what's called for in the Matrix. I mean, Keanu Reeves is in the Matrix. Right, someone who looks good in shiny clothing and uh-huh. uh, sunglasses. Yeah. But um, I wanted to mention, and then, of course, uh, the other one is uh, Night of the Hunter, which mm-hmm. is anti-authority, but more specifically, it's not anti-religion, except it, it, ah, it's, it's, 
that's a complex movie. I love that mm-hmm. movie um, because it implies that much in the same way as, as uh, the Ministry of Magic, it's like there's nothing necessarily wrong with this guy being a preacher except that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. But because he is a preacher, all of these townspeople give him way more credibility and they put their trust in him way too immediately. If he was just a guy they would look at him with distrust as they should or not not distrust but they would they wouldn't warm to him so immediately and so the idea is that like the church or religion in general and i think anybody i think both religious and non-religious people would say this that like it does have two people have an immediate gut reaction to it it might be pro or con but there's often not a lot of nuance in a person's reaction to it, even if it's people that are against it. Mm. Like they just have such a personal, like they're either immediately angry or they they immediately trust it so much and they approach it as an institution as opposed to, as I, as I keep going back to a collection of flawed people, you know, and speaking of that, okay, you got to talk to these people, right? Okay. Wh- which ones born again people? Okay. You know, there's this Onion article from years ago that says... It's now, uh, the Onion isn't real, by the way. No. I don't know if you know this. But the, the, the headline is something along the lines of newly out gay guy overdoing it. <laughs> and I feel like you guys, as level-headed Christians, okay. need to talk to some of these born-agains because it seems like that first year or so, they get pretty obnoxious. Well, I think anybody does when they uh, take on some new thing because it's. I think it's almost as if whether because I would venture to say that somebody who rejects religion the first year after they reject religion probably a little. Uh, I don't like to use the word militant, but a little yeah, obnoxious. You know what? I probably was too. It's. But also, another, like I'd say, a year after I first dis- the first year after I discovered the Mountain Goats music, I wanted yeah. everyone to listen to the Mountain Goats. Yeah. All right, you've turned me around. I'll, okay. I'll forgive these people their obnoxiousness. Yeah. We. It bothers us, too, of course. Yeah. But the person... And, of course, you still want someone to have that passion, but be able to temper it a little bit and see how it works in real life. Right. So um, I do want to mention uh, one more real qu- uh, one or two more real quick, because uh, I mentioned cops earlier when I was talking about the Blues Brothers, and then I moved on. Uh, Buster Keaton hated cops. And he hated oh, right. most authorities because of what they did to Fatty Arbuckle, um, his good friend. And so... Uh, the Keystone Cops in general, uh, which was not a creation of his, that was Max Sennett, but uh, they were already kind of this goofy thing, but then Buster Keaton, anytime he had cops in his movies, I mean, they made the Keystone Cops look like freaking, I don't know, the, the guys from Law & Order, because the cops were just so actively idiotic. Like they, It's like they were trying to be. And uh, he just, he was so vehemently opposed to cops because <laughs> I think he just I think he'd be the first one to say that they get way too high on themselves and don't and don't view themselves as just people who can make mistakes and just uh power absolutely will corrupt a cop and so I think uh so any any movie of his that features cops like the, it is the most it's funny but it is like just so cynical and uh and I think it's pretty awesome well, I want to run down, this is my favorite part of when we do these, I want to okay. just run down a list of the things that I didn't get to. But I've only got like three main ones that I didn't get to that I had wanted to talk about. That's um, 
in keeping with uh, silent comedies, Modern Times mm-hmm. is what I wanted to talk about. Um, THX 1138 I didn't okay. get to. Could have mentioned alongside Brazil or 1984, which I, we mentioned and didn't really talk about. But right. Whatever. Uh, and then finally, I forgot what the third one was that I had on the tip of my tongue. I'm looking. Um, oh, yes. There's an Argentinian film called The Official Story that people should check out. Oh, I've heard good things about that. Very good. Okay, I have a long list. I'm just going to breeze through it. Paths of Glory. I probably should have talked more about that. That's unfortunate. Uh, Natural Born Killers, The Great Dictator, The Manchurian Candidate, Aliens, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, All the King's Men, M, uh, various uh, adaptations of Robin Hood, Capturing the Freedmen's, Planet of the Apes, V for Vendetta, uh, Bad Santa, The Seventh Seal, Silence of the Lambs, Gosford Park, and oddly enough, The Blind Side. Here's why I bring up The Blind Side. I don't like that movie, but uh, you will you will very seldom see somebody who is sort of an authority position uh, figure already. In this case, a wealthy white woman. Uh-huh. Um, you will very seldom see them like they're the good guys and like the impoverished are the bad guys. You will only see that if the impoverished person is also something of an authority figure. And so, like, in The Blind Side, you get the, you know, the the Michael Orr's uh, mother, who's not necessarily a bad person, but sort of, uh, sort of demonized a little bit. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to, like, the saintly white Republican woman. And the only way that you're on board with her is if this person who has authority and has abused it uh, over this person only if that person is there. So there's always going to be an authority, not always, but in certain films, there's always going to be an authority figure that needs to be rebelled against. And if it's going, it's like, okay, the only way that we will accept this person is if there's someone who's a little bit worse. So uh, don't get me wrong. No one should go see the blind side. Okay. So can we wrap up? Uh, Yes. We're going to cross an hour and 40 here. So, um, but at least that means we did give the topic it's fair amount of time. Fair enough. Yes. Okay. Yeah, even though we, yeah, we talked about we talked for almost thirty-five minutes about our pre-topic. It happens. But um, I think we'll probably get more emails on that. Absolutely. Than on the main topic. Um, but you can find us at battleshippretention.com or in iTunes. You can email us David at battleshippretention.com or Tyler at battleshippretention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thepretension or follow Tyler on Twitter at twitter.com slash morelessons, which is the official Twitter, f- Twitter feed of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com or in iTunes. And my other podcast, the weekly television review show Previously On, is available at previouslyonshow.com or in iTunes. Is it wrong that like once we're done with the topic and we have to go into that, I just want to walk away from the mic? It's yeah, just but like you I'm gotta do the thing where yeah, we say bye. Yeah, I'm done recording now. It's yeah. up to you, and it's not that I don't want to listen to you. It's just that we've heard this a million times, as but as have the listeners. You also have to say, "We'll get you. We'll get next you next time. time." Yeah. But the thing is, 225 episodes in. Let me ask you about that. Okay. Do you actually say that we'll get you next time? Because I feel like that's a thing you say when you owe someone money. Like, I'll get you next time. I've I don't know where it came from. Uh, I I I have heard that, but. Uh, because what, what what do you mean by get you? You know, see We'll you. get your attention get, again. Get a hold of you. You know, whatever. Oh, we'll get a hold of you. Okay. So I think it might have come from an episode of The Critic 
where um, <laughs> where he is leaving Miami, and there's a there's a, a sign of a Florida Gator holding a gun, and it says, "You are now leaving Miami. We'll get you next time." <laughs> so it might have been that, right? But uh, and I have no but I have no idea where it came from. All right, it's just something I started saying. Well, thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.